You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. James chapter 4 is where we'll be tonight, and uh, we'll be, if as you find it, go ahead and stand. We'll jump into it this, this evening. James chapter 4 is where we'll be. Uh, as, as you stand, just a reminder that James is dealing with readers who are engaged in Christian warfare. I mean, there's a fight, there are fights going on, there are battles going on, and uh, we just got done in chapter 3 talking about the difference between earthly and heavenly wisdom. And when you operate by earthly wisdom, the result is fighting. The result is battles. The result is conflict and tension. And sometimes I think we have an idealistic view of that early church. You know, we think, well, they were, they were just on fire and, and there were no problems. Except if you read the New Testament, that theory goes out the window. Uh, I was reading in Galatians, I read it last week, but if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. And the idea that Paul was telling the, the church is, churches in Galatia was that you think that you're kind of getting the best of the other person, but as you do it, you're really just devouring each other. Everybody suffers when we're in conflict with each other. So that's the book of Galatians. Here in the book of James, we hear this, we see the same problem. And what's interesting is if you know anything about the, the, the chronology of when these books of the Bible were written, um, many people believe that James and Galatians were the earliest books of the New Testament that were written. I mean, many people believe they were written, finished even before the Gospels, potentially. So this is very early on, and the church already is dealing with lots of problems. And, uh, and so if they were dealing with it, let me just say, we will deal with it. It's going to be an issue for any group of people that gather together and, and try to work together. Um, because here's why, because Satan wants this to end. He wants to get the best of us. He wants to put a stop to what's happening at Eastside Baptist Church. And we have got to learn to deal with conflict and take heed to James's letter. So I'd like to read James 4 verses 1 down through verse 12. And we'll focus mostly on verses 6 through 10 tonight. It says in verse 1, James 4, 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Those are heavy, heavy words. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. 
Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil of another, one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges, judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? This whole section here is dealing with conflict, fights, battles. And tonight, the message title I, I have worked on, you know, sometimes you spend a lot of time on the titles. Um, but the title tonight is this, The Solution to Pollution. And it's not, a, uh, it's not an environmentalist message, by the way. I would submit to you that the biggest problem in a church that's at conflict is not the conflict itself. The biggest, con the biggest problem in a church that's dealing with conflict is pollution of the heart. Because our actions out here begin in here. And the reason people are at odds is because their hearts are full of selfish pride. And there's only one way to overcome that problem of pollution. And I'm, we're going to look. I don't want to give it away. Sometimes, you know, you have to let the reveal come later. But we'll try to look at that tonight, the solution to pollution. Let's pray. Father, I love you. And I need you right now, our church. We need you. And I pray that you'd help us to be a productive and helpful message. And I know there's a lot coming afterwards. And I want to be mindful of that. And, and yet, God, there are messages that... Get, that get preached and as a pastor I feel the weight because I know if we will heed what we're hearing tonight it could prevent us from major catastrophe later God would you help us to see with eyes into the future tonight and recognize that if we will take heed to what your word says in this passage we could prevent a major disaster at Eastside Baptist Church God we love you and we, we pray that we could submit to what your Holy Spirit leads us to uh, to see tonight. Lord, help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> World War I was one of the deadliest and most devastating conflicts in human history. Um, on one side, you had the Allies, you had the French, you had uh, the Americans, you had the British, you had Russia and Italy, and, um, and others. They were all, the, they were considered the Allies. It's amazing how just a few short years later, you know, in World War II, it seems like the, the sides flipped. But in World War I, you had this one side, the Allies, which included the United States. On the other side, you had the Central Powers, which included Germany and Austria and Hungary and, and Turkey and some others. But, but it was a major conflict. The World War I is what they called it because it really did bring um, together um, allies all around the world. I mean, major countries influential, powerful countries all around the world. Um, estimated losses totaled nine, about 9 million soldiers in combat. 
and about 5 million civilians either caught in the crossfire or due to uh, hunger and starvation uh, and probably even more if you would count some of the numbers that people would include in genocide or you know, you know those things that didn't really get counted officially but it was a, it was a, a, a major disaster uh, worldwide devastating I mean not as big as World War II but at the time the biggest that we'd seen it cost billions of dollars to fund and had far-reaching impacts diplomatically and politically and financially well after many years after the war was over and, and what's interesting though about World War One is if and I, if you know anything about the history of it then you know it began with a murder Archduke Francis Ferdinand and his wife Sophie of Austria-Hungary were assassinated by a 19-year-old Bosnian Serb named Gavrilo Princip. And they were already major tensions in the region, but he carried out this assassination and it gave the central powers the excuse to go ahead and escalate things and to... Um, a full-out war, and about a month after uh, the assassination, Germany invaded Belgium, and the war was on. Uh, I, it's hard to believe, though, that something so big and so devastating uh, started with a Browning pistol, because that's that's all he used. He had a pistol in his hand. He wanted to carry out this assassination. And with one gun, he did. And I I know there were already tensions and there was history. But the match that lit the kindling was a murder. And and I I read a story about a boy talking about World War I. uh, And he asked, he said, Dad, how do wars begin? And the dad said, well, take the First World War. It, It started with when Germany invaded Belgium. And from the, uh, from the other room, the mom was listening, and she immediately said, wait, tell the truth. It began because somebody was murdered. The husband then immediately, he got defensive because, I mean, he wasn't necessarily wrong. And um, husbands, you know, we got to help each other out here. So with an air of defensiveness and condescension, he said to his wife, who's answering the boy, you or me? Which is always a good tone if you want to calm a situation down. So that made the wife mad. And she turned her back on him and stormed out of the room and slammed the door as hard as she could. And as the dishes in the cupboard stopped their rattling, there was an awkward silence. And it was broken by the son saying, Daddy, you don't have to tell me anymore. I know how wars begin. You know, James knew how wars begin. I mean, he already had it figured out in verse 1 when he says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? And a lust is a small thing. And that small thing is like a browning pistol. And all it takes is one decision from one person to escalate uh, and, and light the kindling, and light, light the fire, and, and burn it. I mean, just one decision, one person that responds incorrectly. You know, you, and, and we need to understand that battles don't just begin with other people. The battles begin inside of us. Last time we looked at the three battle arenas, and, and first, life is about the war within. The strong lust that we have, that refers to inner desires, inner passion... 
And our problem is not other people. Our problem is we are selfish by nature. We want what we want when we want it. We want to please ourselves. Our biggest problem is not somebody else. Our biggest problem is us. And the first battle that we've got to overcome in, in this, this, uh, this conflict and this, this fight with others and, and the battles and the fighting is the war within. We've got to beat that one first. Uh, our lusts for what we want constantly whisper in our ears and say, you deserve better. You're being treated unfairly. And so you need to stop rolling over and you need to go get what you want. That's where wars and fightings begin because that's our self-talk very often. The second battle arena is the war without. He said in verse 2, ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. And the second battle is outward. It's without. He uses the word kill. And when we are driven by what we want over everything else, we will stop at nothing to get it. And no matter who stands in our way, no matter the damage it does to somebody else's reputation, no matter the impact it has on what they want, we go after others when we lose the war within and it quickly turns into a war without. And we murder with our words. He says, ye kill. We kill with rumors. We assassinate with gossip. We murder with insults and lies. And we think it'll make us happy. We think that will satisfy our lusts. If I've got these strong passions and I go after you, I think it'll help me feel better about myself. It's like the, the young person, the teenager, who, who tears down somebody else to make themselves look better. And really it doesn't make them look better at all. It doesn't help them feel better at all. It just makes them look small. And that we do the same thing. We go after other people thinking that will satisfy something in us, this passion that we have, but it never helps. And according to James, it leaves us empty and it makes our, our prayer ineffective. He says, ye, ha ye ask and receive not because ye ask and miss that ye may consume it upon your lust. So even our prayers are all about what we want and not about what God would want. It's not about God's will. It's about our lust. It's about our passions. And we find ourselves empty as a result. And it really all of that, the war within and the war without, reflect the, the, the real problem. And, and when it comes to wars and fightings, our biggest problem is when we're engaged in a war above. See, meaning our battle is not really with each other. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, the Bible says. Our battle very often is with the Lord. We have a trouble submitting to God's will and to God's word and, and following God's desire for our lives. And he says in verses 4 and 5, look what he says. I'm just trying to review from last week. He says, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? See, when we live according to our lusts, then we are aligning ourselves with the world. It, it's, and it's a mark of the unsaved to live for their self, themselves. But if we are children of God living that way, the Bible says we're guilty of spiritual adultery. You know, the football playoffs are going on right now, and, and we've got different fans of different teams. I know we have some Kansas City Chief fans in the room. Okay, a few. Brother Jeremy just woke up. Um, 
And can you imagine if Patrick Mahomes next week, I think they're going to end up playing the Bengals. Can you imagine if Patrick Mahomes next week says, you know what, I don't really like our chances. And he runs into the Bengals locker room and puts on a Bengals uniform and runs out with the Bengals team. How do you think his teammates would feel about that? I mean, they wouldn't like it, would they? I mean, that would be, that would be unfaithfulness to his team. Well, then imagine with the God in heaven who has redeemed us and made us his people. And we say, yes, we'll take all the benefits of heaven. And yes, we'll, we'll receive your help. And we'll even pray to you and take it when you help us. Um, but when it comes to who we align with, um, I'm going to be on the other team, God. It's unfaithfulness. It's spiritual adultery. And if you read the Old Testament, then you know that when God's people would turn to idolatry, he said, you've been unfaithful to me. You've cheated on me. And the Jews broke their covenant time and time again, so much so that God set them aside. And now we, as God's people, as Christians in the church age, we are his bride. We've taken his name. We are Christians. But when we revert back to letting our lust drive us and make our decisions for us, and we let them take over and grab the steering wheel, and our passions are taking us places, we are being unfaithful to God in the same way that somebody is being an adulterer or an adulteress in a relationship. God is a jealous God. And he longs for us with fiery fervor. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to be close. But our lusts get in the way. And so try to imagine, and just to know, as another example, I used it last week. Uh, try to imagine the inner torture and pain that somebody feels when they've been betrayed by an unfaithful spouse. I mean, like the illustration, last week, you know, there's a neighbor, these two men are at war, they're at a feud, and one of them one day in rage kills the other man and leaves, and that man has left behind a widow. So they go to court, and this man is charged with murder on a technicality. Everybody knows that he killed the other neighbor, but on a technicality, the man is released from prison. And a week later, the man that killed the other man and the widow of the man that, is, that was killed are walking down the street hand in hand. I mean, can you imagine what people would say? They'd say, that's despicable. It's unfaithful. And I, I know that he's passed away, but the, the, the man that killed your husband, you're holding his hand. How could you possibly do that? And yet it's far worse for a child of God who's been redeemed by Jesus Christ to seek friendship with the world. And that problem is not just in holding our hands. That problem begins in the heart. We long for something that we don't have. We long for what the world has. And that's James's entire point. It's a heart problem. I mean, back in James 3, he even said, you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts. We want to align in our hearts. We want to align with the world. And here's the reason we have battles. Because we have polluted hearts. The problem is pollution. We are sinners. And when we stop resisting our natural lusts, we find ourselves at odds with each other and with God. That's the point that James is making. The problem is not just the fighting. That's a symptom of the pollution of the heart. It's kind of like when your kids are fighting. And I don't know about you, um, our children, they, they seem to be very, very good, naturally good at fighting with each other. And sometimes, you know, in a, 
a moment of lazy parenting, I find myself saying something like, kids, stop fighting. I mean, because that's what I want, right? I want them to stop fighting. I also, when I say stop fighting, that also means, uh, a further interpretation is that I want my wife and I to go on a 10-day cruise. <laughs> so you can kind of read, stop fighting, 10-day cruise, okay? So stop fighting. And, and we want them to stop fighting. That's the end goal. But when I say stop fighting, have I helped my children deal with the problem? Not really. Because the fact that they're fighting is pointing to evidence that in their hearts, they are viewing their siblings wrong. Not only are they viewing their siblings wrong and with a matter of, instead of love, with hate, they are also viewing their parents wrong because in a disobedient moment, they are disobeying their parents. So they're breaking the violation of loving their neighbor or their sibling. They're breaking the violation of children obey your parents. I mean, we could talk about a number of things that, that my child is breaking. But if I simply say, stop fighting, I haven't dealt with the matter of the heart. And that's why parenting is so hard, isn't it? Because if, you were, if we're being good parents, then in every moment where our children are failing, we are taking them back to a scriptural principle so they don't miss in that moment God's and the Holy Spirit's ability to work through the word of God and change their heart in the moment. See, but that's where the change is going to be made. It's not about behavior modification, although as parents sometimes we make it about behavior modification. Really, what we need to do is aim for the heart because Jesus said those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart. They defile the man for out of the heart proceed. And, and tell me if this sounds a little bit like the list James has been talking about. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, just talked about killing, adulteries, um, adulterers and adulteresses, fornications, that's sexual sin, adulteries and adulteresses, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, these are the things which defile a man. Listen, we act like we do. Fightings and wars, lust and selfishness, pride and conflict, because it is in our hearts to do so. That's what James is saying. It is the natural man, our, our sin nature, coming out every chance that it gets. We are polluted. This is not, that's not an encouraging thing. I mean, uh, it kind of makes you feel bad about yourself. But we need to get down to that point and recognize that's who we are. We have a sin nature. And if we trust ourselves, we are trusting a polluted heart. And if it's left unchecked, there is no end to the destruction that my natural heart is going to leave behind. I, I don't know if there are, is a more frenzied movement these days than people fighting for in the environment. If you notice, I mean, they are passionate about the environment. I, I don't know, the only other movement that I can think of that kind of conjures that frenzy or that sense of passion is probably the abortion issue. But, I mean, the environmental issue is just completely, in my, in my estimation, I'm not, I'm not saying we should be bad stewards, but in my estimation, we really, we've crossed the line. We've become imbalanced in our desires to protect the environment almost like Romans 1 where you worship creation more than the the creator itself you know and, and I read about two women uh, back in October who were with the just stop oil movement 
and they went into the National Gallery there in London and walked up to a Van Gogh painting called The Sunflower, which is worth $80 million, and they threw tomato soup all over that Van Gogh painting. Then they glued themselves to the wall or to the railing or... I was like, I, let's use the glue in other ways, okay, you know. I mean, they, they glued themselves there. I mean, it, it worth 80, well, it was worth $80 million. I'm sure they're trying to restore it now. But can you imagine, uh, the, the, they're trying to make a point about fossil fuels by destroying um, a priceless piece of art. It just makes absolutely no sense to me. They were arrested and obviously, but those things are happening more and more, which, and I just don't understand it. And, and I think there's a delusion there because they have lifted the earth creation above a level of the creator when really creation is supposed to be something that we have dominion over. I'm not saying that we just destroy it and that we don't care about it, um, but God is more important than creation. And, and they're throwing tomato soup on paintings and things. And I, they believe that pollution is our greatest enemy. They, that we're destroying the planet. But pollution of the heart is the single most dangerous enemy that we will ever face. It's the most powerful force on the, on the planet. Forget uh, just stop oil. Really our battle cry should be just stop sin. That's our greatest enemy. That really deserves our attention. So what's the solution to pollution? And I don't mean carbon emissions. I don't mean recycling. What's the solution to heart pollution? Well, if we were to stop in verse 5, you know, this first part of, of James 4, we might be left hopeless. But thankfully, James doesn't leave us hanging. He gives us some hope. Because really what James mentions is the solution to pollution here in the next few verses. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. And what James is saying is that God's grace is the key against selfish fighting and wars. See, we need God's grace to overcome our sin nature. Here's why. Because our sin nature is too big for us to handle. But God's grace is more than enough to handle it. There's nothing God's grace can't handle. Without God's grace, we are fighting a losing battle within and without and above. But what's wonderful is that James says God's grace is always more. And that means that God's grace is greater. Meaning if we come to God in humility, his grace is always sufficient for the battle that we're facing. It's always more than enough. It kind of reminds me of, you know, one-uppers, but in a good way. You know, you've, you know one-uppers, right? You know, you tell a story, they've always got something bigger and better. You know, I decided, I was thinking about this afternoon, because this was important to meditate about. I was thinking about how to make a one-upper stop talking. And I thought, you know, next time a one-upper starts talking, I'm going to be like, well, you know, to just prove my discipline today, I took a one-month vow of silence. <laughs> Get it? Okay, so if they're going to do that, they're like, well, I just did a two-month vow of silence, and then they're done. Okay, so anyway. It's like kids, though. You know, sometimes can it be that way with kids? Kids are trying to outdo each other. 
You know, and they're, they're trying to, well, my dad can do this, or my dad can do that, or, you know, then you jump right to the triple dog dare, and if you don't put your tongue on the flagpole, you can't show your, your face at school again. You know, one-uppers, it, you know, it, God's grace, though, in some ways, we need to think about God's grace that way, that whatever you face, that God's grace is always bigger than what comes your way. It's always more. There, there, he says, but he giveth more grace. It's always greater. It's always better than. It's always more than enough. It never runs out. But understand, though, God's grace is only available to the humble. He doesn't just kind of, it's not like when you get grace and you get grace. No, he says, if you are humble then God's grace is always enough. And this is all very straightforward. Uh, if someone is ruled by their lusts, if they're ba battling and they're fighting other people, if their passions are in control of their life and they're consumed with getting their way and getting what they want to the point that they're at odds with other people, they have, then you or they have no claim to God's greater grace. If your heart is full of pride and you are at odds with people, then God's grace isn't going to help you because it's not available to you. In fact, not only does God withhold his grace, but he resists the proud. And that's a military term, meaning that God opposes us. See, pride puts you and God at odds. And it reminds me, when I was at high school and playing football in high school, we would have position groups. And, and in my position groups were two brothers that went on to play in the NFL. And so there were times where it was me against both of them. And I'll just tell you this, I never made, I never made a dent. I mean, I would go against them and it was like me pushing against the side of this building. That's what it felt like. I mean, and, and in many ways, that is always what comes to mind when I think if I have pride in my life and in my heart, God doesn't give me grace. He's actually opposing me. He's resisting me. When I have pride in my life, then God cannot help me. God withholds and resists and works and blocks against me. This is a military term that says God is opposing me. The word proud is made up of two words, meaning it's hooper, which is above, and fai nomai, which means to appear or be manifest. So listen to this. The word literally means one who shows himself above other people. That's what pride means. And it means, get this, it means overtopping. So this is the Greek word for one-upper. I mean, I was like, man, this is, that's literally what it is overtopping and and it works like a like pinching a hose and stopping God's grace from flowing through it when you and I live with an element of pride God's grace cannot get to us we have no claim on the grace of God and so James is talking about a defiant self-dependent sinner that sets himself up above other people as his own God does that sound familiar to any Old Testament character that you can think of? Maybe in the book of Isaiah, maybe before creation in heaven, there was somebody, what was his name? His name was Lucifer. And what did he say? He said, I will be like the most high. I will ascend into heaven. What he was saying is that I will be my own God and I will put myself above other people. That is where pride began 
And that is the idea of the word that God uses right here in pride, as, as the word pride, is that we are lifting ourselves up, putting ourselves up in a position over other people in a condescending or in a contemptive way that pride is us lifting ourselves up. But as we do that, folks, we are forfeiting God's grace in our lives. We cannot expect to have help or victory in any area of life if pride exists. What I love about this, though, is that God does give grace to the humble. See, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus said, whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. A humble spirit is the first step to God's grace. And if you look down at verse 10, the end of this thought unit, what does he say in verse 10? What's the first word of verse 10? Look at it. What's the first word? Humble yourselves in the sight of God and he shall lift you up. Are you getting the idea that humility, when it comes to God, humility is a very important factor? He says in verse 7, so he gives us this bookends, okay? So he says, um, God gives grace to the proud. God resisted the proud but gives grace to the humble. I don't want to get that wrong. Um, Over here he says, humble yourselves um, before God, basically. And so then, though, in the middle, he gives us these commands. And he says, humility here, humility here. But in the middle of it, you've got these commands. And what he does is he gives us, here's how you practice humility. Here's the process of humility. You start with humility, but here's what it looks like here. 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 And just as a reminder, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. What he's saying is, if you will humble yourself right here, then God will then give you the ability to submit yourself to him, resist the devil, uh, all of these things that he gives right here. If we will start with humility, God gives us the grace to do these things that we could never do on our own. He says, submit to God in verse 7. You know what he's saying? Stop fighting the battle above. Stop resisting God. I mean, surrender your will to God's control. The essence of humility is submission. It starts with salvation and then you submit um, yourself daily, unconditionally to God's will and God's word. I think our problem is we submitted to God unconditionally at salvation, but every day along the way we forget, I've got to do it again tomorrow. I've got to submit myself to God so that he can give me grace. Understand, if I wake up and I think I don't need the Lord first thing in the morning and I get throughout the whole day and I've not submitted myself to God and humbled myself before him or sought him, do you realize that I've gone a whole day without his grace? And I don't know about you, but I can't live a day without God's grace. There's no telling what I will do if I'm left to myself without God's grace. I need him every step of the way. And I must, along the way, in every situation, in every conversation, submit myself to God so that I have his grace. He says, resist the devil. That's something else. If I will humble myself, then he will give me the ability to resist the devil. You say, well, that's not possible. The devil's too strong. Well, I'm, I'm I'm just telling you, sometimes I think we overemphasize. I mean, I know that the devil is strong. I mean, even Michael the archangel uh, you know, wouldn't, durst not bring a railing accusation against him that we hear, we hear in the book of Jude. But I also think that if James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, you know, everyone's all about all these steps in spiritual warfare, and I believe that happens. But I also believe we overthink it sometimes when James says, resist the devil and he will flee. 
And if you will submit yourself to God and resist the forces of Satan in your life, he will flee from you. Uh, the Greek word for resist is antistome. You know what we get, what word we get from that? Antihistamine. As in Benadryl. And they block, if, if you take an antihistamine, they block or resist histamines, which histamines are chemicals in your body um, that cause the symptoms of allergies. And so you take them when you're serious. I mean, when I have an allergy attack, guess what I do? I go and get a Benadryl. First thing I do. I, and I take Benadryl because I, I don't want those symptoms of the allergies to go away. And I'm serious about getting rid of those symptoms. And see, that's the idea. If you're going to resist Satan, you've got to be serious about your desire to say no to him as the old master and say yes to your new master. I'm going to resist Satan with God's grace and help. It is impossible, folks, to serve two masters. Yet every time that you slander somebody, you're submitting yourself to your old master. Every time you gossip about somebody in your life, then you are submitting to your old master. Every time you criticize somebody in authority, you are submitting to your old master. Every time you lose your cool at home or on the road, you are submitting yourself to the old master. And the devil doesn't show up in a red suit and horns and a pitchfork. No, he shows up in when you're tempted to be selfish and his mindset shows up when you don't want to resist anymore and you kind of give in to the lust. See, that's, that's how the devil influences us, I believe. More than just showing up in our lives, he convinces us that the way that we think is the right way to think. And I, I'm not going to put up with that from somebody else. He doesn't show up with a pitchfork, but he's definitely influencing my life and how I'm thinking. Resist the devil, the Bible says. Stand strong. Jesus Christ used scripture to resist the devil. Who am I to think that I can resist him in my own strength? I can't. But if I have the Bible at my side, then the Bible says that I can resist the devil and he will flee. Don't complicate it. You, if you humble yourself before God, then you can submit to him and you can resist the devil. And verse 8 says, draw nigh to God. Humility puts you in a position where you can actually get closer to God. You know, it's hard to be at war with others when you're close to God. It's kind of like, you know, when, I, um, when, I'm, when we have people over... Let's say we have people over to our house and there may be times and maybe your house is, I'm sure, like this too. Sometimes you've got tension and the kids are acting up or whatever. It's amazing when we have guests over to our house, it's amazing how good our kids are. You know, because there's people there watching and they're, you know, and they're, they're trying to, you know, we say be good around people and we're not trying to be fake, but be good or you won't like what happens after, you know. Well, it's amazing when, when somebody's in your presence like that, you think twice about what you do. Well, it's the same way when you are walking close to God, it's amazing how much you could reconsider your actions. When, when you every day in every moment are thinking the Holy Spirit is with me and he's watching my every move and he's watching my every thought and he knows every word I say, it's amazing how that will start to change the way that you behave. When you draw nigh to God, the Bible says he draws nigh to you. So in other words, one step actually becomes two steps. Because I take a step and God takes a step. In many ways, God obviously, he, it starts with him. He calls us to himself. But if I will take a step toward God, the Bible says he takes a step toward me. Draw nigh. 
And sometimes we think God is so far away. No, he's been calling you the whole time. He's just waiting for you to take a step. It's like you're up there on the shelf and, he, and all he's waiting is for you to say, hey, can you come get me down off the shelf? And he takes a step toward you. Too many people pull away from God in pride, but one step toward God brings him closer to you as well. Draw nigh to God. When you are humble before God, he gives you the grace to do it. When you're humble before God, he says in verse 9, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Uh, he says the, the process of humility um, is not just submit to God and resist the devil and draw night to God, but it's also clean up your act. When he says, um, be afflicted and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning, he's not saying, if you're a child of God, you can't ever be happy again. I mean, that's not the way he works. No, what he's saying, it's very similar um, to when, in Jesus, when Jesus says, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's not just about losing somebody. It's about that your attitude towards sin is you hate sin so bad that when you sin, you just hate the fact that you've sinned and you mourn over it. You grieve about it. The fact that you would allow something in your life. And I can't believe that I, I slipped and I did that again. And I can't believe that I fell into that temptation again. And there's such a spirit of not self-defeat. But just a spirit that I know I've disappointed my father. And I don't, I don't want him to be disappointed in me. And we mourn and we grieve. And, and the, the laughter. The, you know, sometimes I think that God's people were a little bit too flippant about things that we shouldn't be joking about. You know, everything can be a joke and, and everything can have an innuendo. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I've been in that situation and I maybe have laughed at something that I shouldn't have laughed at or, or said something that was maybe a little borderline. And, and afterwards, I'm, I, I'm, I'm thinking, I can't, I, I know for a fact that God can't be pleased with that. And, and while I'm laughing about it, I should be mourning that my heart would even go there. And that, my, that I would be even tempted to tell that joke or laugh at that joke or laugh at that inappropriate content. You know, we, we've got to be more sensitive to sin. When you, and, and listen, when you are humble before God, he makes you more sensitive towards sin. He, he starts to work on you about your sin. And, and you know, sometimes we think, I, I want to just, it's kind of like if a squatter showed up at your house. And, and he just set up a, a place in your living room. You know, I don't think you'd put up with that very long, would you? And yet, you know, I, I believe probably too many of God's people, um, you know, are allowing the squatter of sin. They kind of just exist in their homes. And exist in their hearts. And it's like it's no big deal. We wouldn't let somebody do that in our living room. And yet we're, letting, we're kind of letting sin do that in our hearts. And we've got to have a different attitude about sin. He says mourn and grieve when you sin. It's not funny. It's not something to joke about. But I just want you to notice the point here tonight. Watch the progression. The goal over here is to stop Christian warfare, okay? So let's say that our goal over here is we want to stop the fighting. We want to get rid of the conflict and the tension, well, the only way to get rid of the conflict and tension is to have a change of heart. Because it's out of the heart that we do these things, right? Well, the only way to have a change of heart is to have God's grace in our lives. 
But the only way to have God's grace in our lives is to be humble before God. So it starts with humility. The next step is grace. The next step is heart change. And the final step is the wars and fightings start to go away. And, and so in a nutshell, here's my point tonight. The solution, see the problem again, it's a heart problem. So the solution to the fighting is not, well, you know, we're just going to work on getting along better. No, the solution to pollution is submission. The solution to pollution is submission. And if I, if I will overhear, humble myself before God, then I have his grace. And if I have his grace, then he changes my heart. And if he changes my heart, then I find myself with less tension and less fighting and less conflict. And the wars and the fightings tend to subside because I'm having heart change. See, it's you and I recognizing that none of the bad stuff is ever going to end over here until we submit to God over here. See, I want to go back to the opening illustration. World War I officially ended on November 11th, 1918. It's the day we celebrate, what? Veterans Day. Armistice. You know, they signed an armistice on that day. And, and the reason that it ended is because Germany essentially waved a white flag. And at that point, because Germany waved the white flag, the Allies did the right thing and extended grace. And here's the point that I want to make tonight, is that your battles are not going to end until you wave a white flag with God. Until you say, I'm not the master. You're the master. Until I say, I'm tired of the fighting and I'm tired of a worldly mindset and I'm tired of sick of not getting along with people and I'm through with the gossip and I'm through with the criticism. I'm through with targeting that person. I need a change of heart. But if I'm going to have a change of heart, then I need God's grace. But if I'm going to have God's grace, then I must humbly submit myself to the right master every day, every hour, every conversation, every life choice, every response. Father, I'm waving the white flag tonight because I'm tired of the tension over here and I need a heart change and I need your grace. But it all starts right over here with me waving a white flag, humbling myself and submitting myself because the solution to pollution is not just stop fighting. No, the solution to pollution is a humble heart. It's submission. I mentioned this morning that that we, somebody bought us a snowblower, and I'm just so thankful for it, especially the last few weeks. But, you know, I was thinking about the snowblower, and I was thinking about all the things that a snowblower gives me a benefit in. And, it, number one, it'll save me some time, right? I mean, unless, unless you're just a really fast shoveler, a snowblower works pretty fast. The, another thing it'll do is it'll, it'll save me some some back pain uh, because if you've ever shoveled then you know you kind of feel now I know a snowblower kind of works different muscles too but but it's definitely easier on you than shoveling uh, a snowblower is going to save me time it's going to save me energy it's going to save me effort it's going to save. it's going to be a benefit 
to me. And let's just say that all the benefits of snow blowing are all of these things. In the end, it really, it helps me clear the snow and it helps me save some time and it helps me save some energy. But when I first got the snowblower, I was looking around and, and I couldn't find the key to it. And I don't know about you, but if you ever had a snowblower and you don't have a key, that snowblower is worth very little. I mean, you could go out there and push it all you want, but I think that's probably not the best way to use a snowblower. So I had to look for the key, and, and what I didn't realize is it was attached in one spot, but I just didn't see it. But you know, I started thinking about that in terms of the message tonight. You know, the key to the snowblower opens up a world of advantages. But, but the key, without the key, it's not going to help me at all. But see, I don't, the key wasn't already in the ignition. The thing is, I had to look for the key. I had to get down and I had to find it. You know, here it is, okay, and I had to cut it off. And when I finally found the key and stuck it in the snowblower and turned it on, that's when I finally got the advantages. Here's the thing. God's grace is the key to all the things that you want in life, to living the life that pleases God. God's grace is the key to ending fighting and a key to a changed heart. God's key is the is God's grace is the key to all of those things that we want to live as Christians. But if you don't have the key, then you miss all the advantages. God's without God's grace, you don't get any of the advantages of living the Christian life. But understand, if you don't if you don't ask God for the key, you're not going to get the key. If you don't submit yourself to God, if you don't humble yourself before God, then God's grace will not be available to you. You must start by humbling yourself before him and saying, God, I want all the advantages that your grace brings me, but I'm going to have to humble myself before you if I want to have it. But when you start to finally submit yourself to the right master, you know what you find? That resisting the devil is easier. And drawing nigh to God is more natural. And confession of sin is more instantaneous because you're sensitive to it. And, and sin's no longer something that you laugh about. It's something you mourn about. When, when you finally submit to the right master, then, then you don't have to get the last word in, when, in the argument anymore. And you don't, you, don't have, you don't bow up when you're corrected. You're not quite as defensive as you used to be. When, when, when uh, you submit to the right master and you have God's grace, you're not so defensive about your kids when somebody says something to them. And you're not, you prioritize people over your feelings. Listen, I'm telling you the solution to pollution is not willpower. And it's not diplomacy. And it's not ignoring people. It's certainly not self-improvement. No, it's when humility enables the grace of God to produce a heart change. The solution to pollution is submission. And all of these great things are available to us by God's grace. But none of it is available to us unless we submit. If you're wondering why you can't overcome the battles of the flesh, if you're wondering why you can't Keep your mouth shut in argument. If you're wondering why you can't get over that somebody said or did something to you and you're just kind of holding on. If you're wondering why you're kind of always at odds with somebody and you're always in a battle and you're always at war with people. Well, don't just go over here and say, I'm going to fix all the things that are wrong. Take a step back and say, no, I need a heart change. But before I get a heart change, 
why I need God's grace. But before I get God's grace, I need every single day to submit to God and humble myself before him. Because the key, the key, the, the solution to pollution is submission. And sometimes I think we're looking for change without the grace of God. And if we're looking for change without God's grace, then all we're doing is modifying behavior. And we're missing out on what true change really is. It starts with a heart of humility, asking for God's grace, which enables all of these other things in our lives that we must have if we're going to live the Christian life that pleases God. The solution to pollution is submission. Are you on a daily basis waving the white flag? If you're not, you don't have the key to all of the other things that God's grace can unlock. So, you know, church, I'm, I think about a message like this and I think, you know, under the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances, you know, there could come a day where the wars and the fightings over here just blow up. And you've probably been in situations or seen situations in churches where they do. You know, I, I'm thankful for the way that God protects Eastside Baptist Church. It's a blessing. It's a th I'm thankful for the unity. But you know, sometimes the unity is a little bit more fragile than we think. Because when we get to the place where we're full of people um, that are walking according to our lusts and passions, then it really doesn't take much kindling. You know, it, all, it might just take a browning pistol to kind of blow everything up. That's how fragile we are as human beings. And that's why every single day, I, we've got to start our day by waving a white flag. And saying, God, I submit to you. If I don't submit to you, I don't have your grace. And if I don't have your grace, God, there's no telling what I'm capable of over here. And what you have called me to do is so important that I'm willing to take some serious steps to keep myself in a good position with you, Father. So every day, every morning, every conversation, every interaction, I'm going to wave the white flag because I need God's grace at every single moment of life. Let's stand together. Thank you for your attention tonight. Well, there's a lot of things here, and, and yet we really must, we must make sure that we are submitting to God daily. It's, it's really easy uh, to assume this is a message that doesn't apply to us. And yet, if we don't pay attention, uh, we could find ourselves in trouble as a church. Because James was writing to people that were already in trouble as a church. I don't think we realize how fragile it can be if we, on a daily basis, don't seek God's grace through humility. And truth is, boy, in our hearts there is pollution. And the only solution to that pollution is submission. And maybe we need to just maybe say, you know what, I need to make a practice. In my life every day, I need to be humble before God. Because if I'm not, I don't trust the pollution of my heart. It will lead me in the wrong way as a church, as a family, as an individual. However this applies, let's make sure we do business with God tonight. Father, thank you for the truth. I pray that you'd help us to 
see how it applies to us. Help every person here to really take time to apply this truth to their life and not just assume it applies to somebody else. But God, we really could, we need to be put ourselves in a position that we understand that the pollution of our heart could cause us to do, I mean, things we never thought we could do. And without your grace and help, Lord, really, we are capable of all kinds of things. So tonight, I just pray that you would help us to see ourselves for who we are and be willing on a daily basis to wave a white flag, understanding that the solution to the pollution of our hearts is submission to God. Lord, work as you will and help us, Lord, tonight to be submissive to your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.